0: Welcome to FinTech Family Hour. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, content director at Money 2020 by day and your host by night. We are back with a very special guest that I've been following as an entrepreneur since I was actually in college. That's right. I went to college. He was the CEO of Wealthfront at that point. I'm talking about Adam Nash and his new company, Daffy. Daffy's mission is to help people be more generous more often. How? The short answer is donor advised funds. We cover the long answer in the conversation. Don't worry. This episode is brought to you by FS Vector. You'll hear more about them later, but if you want to learn more now, dive into the show notes, hit that link, or go to fsvector.com and tell them Zach sent you. Without further ado, here's Adam. Adam Nash, how are you doing? today, this morning for you, right? I guess it's morning for me too, but especially morning for you. How you doing?
1: Yeah, no, it's morning. I got the big coffee here. I'm hoping that that means that the ramp of the conversation is just going to get more and more intense as we go. Oh yeah. It's more and more coffee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: We're going to start off light. And by the end, it's Thunderdome is kind of what I was thinking. It's going to, it's just going to get more and more wild over here. Um, Speaking of Thunderdome, you're based in SF, right?
1: Uh, South. I I live near Stanford. Uh, Daffy is headquartered in uh, Los Altos.
0: Cool. 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 So take me back a little bit to your childhood. So you've had a very uh, entrepreneurial background. We were the, I remember I first started following the man, legend, Twitter uh, being, honestly, that I knew you as when I first figured out who you were. Like you were just, I was in Kansas City, you were in Silicon Valley. I always like wanted to make it there. Um, and I was at a company called Bloom back in the day when you were doing wealth. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, when yeah. you were like, right when you were coming into Wealthfront is I think right when I was leaving Bloom. Um, so that's how I kind of discovered you. But obviously, serial entrepreneur done around a lot of, a lot around that area. But take me back to your youth. Have you always kind of had that entrepreneur youth like how did how did it always start oh there are you know as usual like you you go back um what was that steve Jobs speech about um,
1: it all makes sense in retrospect yeah connecting yeah. the dots of your life yeah. like it looks makes sense backwards so I, I can look back and you know maybe it was not totally normal that my brother and i would pick lemons off our tree and put them in a wagon and walk around the neighborhood selling them for 10 cents and thought that was like worth doing but um But no, actually, I mean, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Some of my background, um, I really feel, is just environmental and related. I mean, I was the first engineer in my family in some ways. Uh, Most of my family are doctors. Both my parents are doctors. Um, And so I I don't know that I was naturally destined for, you know, computer science or software, et cetera. Um, But I did grow up in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, not that typical a story. Um, And then, of course, after high school, I ended up going uh, to Stanford and majoring in computer science. And obviously, computer science is a big deal there. And so I I feel very lucky. I've met some wonderful people along the way, people who have given me guidance and and pulled me along. But um, you could probably describe my background as starting very much focused on science and engineering. My first internship was actually at NASA. Um, Oh, what'd uh, you do there? Oh, this is a little embarrassing. Uh, Great. Let's Let's lean in. I was an intern. So (laughs) what I did there very much was take advantage of the fact that they were willing to take on a 15-year-old um, once a week. Um, and I got out of going to school every Monday. I literally had no classes on Monday. I would go down to NASA Ames Research. Um, but actually, it sounds fantastic, so I'll tell you. What I did Technically, what I did was I did computational fluid dynamics. I was writing code um, to try and test out different theories about how they were going to move away from these giant wind tunnels. I don't know if you've been to the Bay Area, but if you go to Moffett Field, they have these giant wind tunnels. And for a, a large part of post-World War II, the way you tested new aircraft and, and and things were in these giant wind tunnels that blew smoke by them. But by the 80s, they had realized that computers were coming and they were just starting with parallel processing and they had Cray supercomputers and they wanted to move testing to computers. And there were some people who believed that that wasn't possible. Um, and so I ended up r- learning how to write Fortran, of all things, um, and writing code to kind of do... Fluid dynamic simulations, um, and then compare them to what happened in the wind tunnels to see where the errors were. Um, I don't know that I really moved to the bar of, of where NASA was, but um, it was an amazing experience to drive down there, um, every Monday. Actually, my mom drove me because I, I was gonna say, enough. yeah,
0: can we come back to the part where you were 15 at this point? I mean, what you were? Really- <laughs> oh, well, um. Yeah. You know, so like a lot of people, I was I was born
1: younger than I am now. Um, <laughs> no, but
0: you know, I mean, in terms um, of what you just said that you were doing at 15, most people don't have their first job until they're 16. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I was um, I was young in school,
1: so I, I, I started early. I, I skipped a grade. So, you know, I was um, I was actually 16 when I went to Stanford, um, not because I missed years of high school or junior high or anything like that, but because I just had started high school young. So, um, so, yeah, so senior year was very exciting. I actually got my license. It was great, but I got very used to people driving me around in the interim. Uh, but yeah, it was just, it was very interesting. I mean, I remember like the, the, one of the moments I remember, this will sound so funny, but it dates me is I remember every day my mom would drop me off on this Monday for this internship. And there was only these sleepy security guards. Like NASA wasn't, believe it or not, the NASA Ames Research Center Moffitt Field wasn't that secure a place. It was right next to the Air Force Base. Moffett Field was very secure. And there was still an Air Force Base there at the time. Um, but I remember one day we show up and the security guards are not there. There's about eight guys in what looked like urban camo with weapons. And they were at the gate. And I'm like, what is going on? I was like, I have no idea what's going on. And it turned out they had started bombing for the Gulf War. This is like '91. Oh, wow. January 91. And, um, and that was my reminder of like, oh yeah, this is right next to a military base. That's, that's a real thing. So, um, a little naive, um, but, uh, it was a wonderful experience and, uh, the people working, I mean, when I look back, it's like, you know, this is, that was probably the first job where I actually wrote code that mattered. Yeah. Um, I had to learn a new language, learn new computers, you know, SGI, um, Irix was the operating system back then, Cray supercomputers, like I said, and, um, It didn't make sense at the time, but when I went to college and grad school, you know, I realized like, oh, I was actually there when parallel computing was actually very early and big vector processors were the thing. And um, it's always funny how these things become relevant. Um, You know, who knew that, you know, in 2023, we would be using GPUs to, you know, mine crypto or, you know, write you know, and and you know, write extra sonnets that you know William Shakespeare never wrote for you know GPT, etc. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Or have AI move you know a uh, hundred years of progress in two months. You know, minor things like that. Um, it, it's interesting thinking about what hyper impressive brains are capable of in different. Geographies and different ecosystems, right? And I mean, starting school that early, like I, I think we can read between the lines that maybe, you know, you weren't bad at math. Maybe you weren't bad at some of the things that, you know, are helpful in the world of engineering. Um, but I think there's something to be said for, you know, the, a kid in Indiana that is also gifted in a similar way. How much of, you know, and you alluded to the luck before I think you had said it, but how much do you attribute to growing up in Silicon Valley. Like, does that seem reproducible in any other way? Is that kind of one of the big keys? Well, I I am a big fan. I mean, like there's different economic theories
1: around these kind of clusters that form, but I am am a fan of clustering theory. I believe that there are kind of network effects that happen between people and industries and jobs and skills. Um, I don't think it's an accident that, you know, most of my family is actually from New York. My parents moved out to California before I was born, um, and so I, I, I tend to go between the two worlds uh, a little bit. Um, and yeah, it's very different. I think that if I'd grown up in New York, it would have been, I would have been different. I would have focused on different things and may not have been pulled in. I mean, I had someone in high school, I had a teacher that I love that said, you know, actually, you know, with your background, you, you, you know, you're very good at math and science, like you just said, but you, you know, you also seem to be able to talk to people. So, you know, those people usually end up running companies. I, I don't know if that's something that gets said everywhere, if that's a Silicon Valley thing. Um, but I mean, a lot of it is, I, I don't, I wouldn't overemphasize geography. I think we have a lot of control over that. Um, but there are all these steps along the way. I mean, science was lauded, you know, even though my, uh, my grandfather on my, um, my father's side, um, I remember learning when I was little that he had a patent, you know, that he had built this business for himself. He ended up running a company, um, and he was very successful, um, out on the East coast, but a lot of it was traced to the fact that he had this patent, that he studied biology and that he had come up. Um, this will sound ridiculous, but he, um, I, I shouldn't say ridiculous, but it, it's um, its a sign of the times, but his patent, this will this will be great, but you can look it up. It's true. He has the patent. He had the patent on that jelly that they pack filter fish in. <laughs> <laughs> like to keep it fresh.
0: I'm not kidding. That is not what I would Very expect. 1950s, <laughs> yeah. 60s. Yeah. Like, But but I
1: grew up like idolizing this idea. I mean, even when I went to college, et cetera, I was very much like, well, you know what the, the real mark of success would be as a, as a scientist is like, how many patents you have? Like, I was still raised with a little bit of that energy. Um, and obviously, that turned out to be not the best measure. Um, although, you know, when I worked in my early career at companies like, you know, Apple and eBay, et cetera, like I, you know, I, I, I tried to get my name on and then work on things that I thought were patentable technology. I actually did some of that work. Um, but, um, I, I do think that the location affects you. It, it, I, I do think it's mostly people that affect you, not the location. Yeah, that's but exactly. Locations pull in people, people self-select into different lives and, and different environments. And, you know, they pursue things. I think if you live, I have a lot of family down in, in Hollywood and, you know, people don't move to LA and Hollywood just randomly. Like there's, there's intent there. Right. And some of that intent is tied to the movie business and entertainment. And and so I I do think that people come to Silicon Valley because they wanna build companies and work on the future of technology. But you don't have to be here to do it, but I do think a lot of people who want to do it come. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean, I think what you're saying about, like, you don't have to be here to do it now, right? But in terms of what you were talking about, like 90s, like kind of did, I mean, to, to, to ride a piece of that, you know, to ride a piece of that wave then it's, I think you did have to kind of move there. Right. And even in some of like their earlier, I feel like it's only been true over the last maybe decade, maybe five years that that geographic kind of agnostic nature and being able like. This wouldn't have happened six years ago. You know, like I don't think Riverside existed. Number one. And number two, like you would, you'd be, you know, in your world, I'd be in my world. Like I always grew up like wanting to get there. And then right when I got to the, uh, to the age where I actually joined a company in Silicon Valley, literally COVID hit that week. And then I had to cancel the, the plane ticket and now like worked for a Silicon Valley company for, you know, year and a half before I joined Money 2020, but never went there a single time. So it's a, yeah, it's weird how that shifted, and I feel like I didn't get a lot of the value of the Silicon Valley. You know, I was hoping to like be able to spend time there. Like, I bet I would have, you know, DM'd you 14 times and tried to get coffee. You know, like things like that. I feel like is really to your point, kind of what's what for me would be missing and was missing when I was working there, but not working there, sort of a thing. Yeah, well, I think a lot of things have
1: changed. I mean, I think people forget how counterintuitive the Silicon Valley system was, even to this day. I mean, like, look, with the recent bank blow up, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, I still see it in my feed where people are massively skeptical about just the way that Silicon Valley thinks about things, thinks about talent, thinks about building businesses, thinks about long-term value creation, going after customers. And it is immersive. Um, I do think that you get most of the Silicon Valley experience when you end up belonging to some of the institutions, right? If you go to a school like Stanford, um, if you work at a company, my first job out of school was, I thought I was joining Next, but of course, Apple bought Next or maybe Next bought Apple. I'm still not totally sure what happened. But um, you know, I ended up at Apple in that crazy time in the 90s where everyone thought Apple was going to die. And um, you know, in the end of the day, I do think that it's really about the people that you work with and, and, and working on problems together. Um, what I've been excited about the last 10, 15 years is that the ideas that Silicon Valley had that were so counterintuitive um, have spread to so many different geographies and people are pulling them apart and deciding what to keep and what not to. But um, I don't think it was ever unique to Silicon Valley per se. Um, I mean, Route 128 in, in Boston was always phenomenal for certain types of technology innovation and MIT is right there. I mean, there's so many great technology centers in the world what was unique, though, about um, Silicon Valley, in my view, was not just this combination of people wanting to work on technology, um, but the audacity to think that you could actually just leave and start new companies. I mean, this goes back to the traitorous eight, the oh, yeah. bear child, yeah. and, and all these other things. Um, these weird combination of you know, not allowing people to leave jobs and work on the same thing at a new company, the, the willingness of, of people with money to, to write checks to engineers. Who didn't have business training? Who 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 didn't look like the next executive in the Fortune 500? Um, so there's a little bit of that Northern California attitude in there. There's a little bit of accidents of history. Um, I think there's a little bit of just being 3,000 miles away from the power centers of the country. But there's um, there's a lot that makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. But you're right. I, I, I had you know I spent my whole life. I mean, it's almost embarrassing in Silicon Valley to have been born here because Silicon Valley is built by people who come here. Um, whether they're from inside the US or from other countries. And so, but I've played, you know, tour guide and guests, you know, and host many, many times. And uh, I will say that, unfortunately, I I think that people come into it, there aren't great guidelines of how to do it. And if you don't meet people who kind of take you in, um, it's very easy to come out and live in San Francisco for a few years and just never quite click into the community or say, I don't see this energy that i would heard about. Um, And so, you know, No system is perfect, as it turns out, but I I do think a lot of people try to improve.
0: Yeah, that's true of New York. That's true. I mean, I I feel like this, if you don't have a a hustle to you, if you're not, like, you know, kind of running after it the correct way, that's true in any city. And man, I walk too slow for New York. Let me tell you, they do not like you walk too slow for New York. Fascinating. That's interesting. Come
1: on. People in New York are going. They they're they're on whatever they're on. they are going Um, And I'm just a little bit too much like the sun's out. Those are pretty building. I play.
0: I've been there a hundred times. I'm still play tourist every time. I think New York is such an amazing. city. That's hilarious. It's it's like my natural speed. I I find myself when I go there, I'm like, oh, this is like the speed at which the world should move. And then I come, I live in Kansas City. So then I come back here, I get in my car and I'm literally just honking at everyone, just honking and screaming. And it's just, I don't think I'd be a good person if I lived there for the long term. Well, this is why I get into trouble.
1: It's a little bit of that family background. It's like, when I think of what a city should be and what a city is, I think of New York. So, you know, I'm here in the Valley and people are like, oh, San Francisco city. I'm like, that's not a city. That's that's like eight hundred thousand. Yeah, so that's barely. It's
0: a barely. It's a very nice town. Ta- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Something you said earlier, though, to the traitorous eight. I don't want to spend too much time on it because Adam and I have limited time. But listeners, if you don't know what he was referring to, there's an amazing documentary. I think it's still on Netflix. I want to say it's on HBO too. If it's not, it's literally worth spending the money to rent. But it's called Something Ventured. It goes into all of everything that Adam just alluded to. That is, it Fairchild. Uh, the founding of uh, like vc all of it it's so fucking good i watch it at least once a year highly recommend go do that now let's take just a moment to talk about our exclusive sponsor and the team that makes this all possible fs vector fs vector is the firm for innovative financial services That means a lot of things, but most of all, what it means right now is a path to clarity. The policy and regulatory landscape hasn't felt this unclear in a long time. From banking to cryptocurrency and everything in between, uncertainty is rampant. We know there's no crystal ball, but the closest thing we have can be good advisors. Not consultants, as we talked about in the previous episode, but advisors navigating uncertainty isn't a job for a noob that's why fs vector has experienced advisors from successful founders to ex regulators to experts in really all fields reason-based justifiable decision making that you can clearly show your work to regulators and auditors it's never been so important to show your work I wouldn't have started recommending FS Vector to founder friends before they were a sponsor if I really didn't trust their expertise. And I do. And that's why they're a sponsor. If I was building something new right now, I'd be working with FS Vector. I recommend all my friends to them. As I said, if you're building something new, evolving something that exists, or not sure about how to handle a unique situation in the world of financial services, FS Vector can help. Go to fsvector.com and tell them Zach sent you. Back to our regular scheduled programming. Um, (laughs) So with that limited time that we were kind of alluding to, let's get into Daffy, get into kind of like the fintech world a little bit. So before we get into that, tell us a little bit, just, you know, give the world a quick kind of drive through your background in fintech and in finance. I know obviously the wealth front thing is a big piece of that, but have you had any other kind of notable fintech moments or are you doing like investing in that world as well? Like kind of, how'd you get yourself up to speed in that world? Yeah, well, I'm I'm
1: a very active angel investor. I think I'm up to 129 companies that I've invested in over the last 12 years or so. And, and a lot of that is in fintech and consumer and, and marketplaces. But the truth is, most of my career wasn't about fintech. I think most of my career could probably be defined as following the wave of technology as it's moved through different industries and problems, because obviously technology gets more and more capable over time. And so there are problems you couldn't go after in the early years that now you can. And that always is always true. Moore's law is just relentless, you know, pushing forward. And so Um, you know, I, like I said, my first job was at Apple. I worked at a startup in the late nineties, went public in 99. I know that sounds exciting, but for everyone listening, it it turns out every company went public in 99. It was just the thing to do back
0: then. I was going to say the, there's a next piece of that story that happens where that doesn't keep going up, right? That doesn't does that go all the oh, way up? This is now my fourth. This is now my I realize my
1: fourth tech downturn, if you include the one that happened while I was in college, right? The early 90s recession, et cetera, where HP was doing layoffs, et cetera. But tech is a boom bust cycle. Um, and it's because it's invested against the future. I mean, I've 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 done enough finance to, to, to realize that what happens is you have technology. There's a lot of uncertainty. It could be immensely big. It could. I mean, we really don't appreciate, I think, still to this day, the limits of what technology can do both economically and, and for society. And so depending on your view of it, you could you could justify funding immense amounts of money. Um, and then inevitably things are harder than you expect. And so it crashes, that hype cycle happens, et cetera. And so it happens repeatedly over and over again. Um, although sometimes, let's be clear, it's not tech's fault. But I think I think the bubble bursting was close to tech's fault. Um, but no, my career was like um, I, I went to business school um, after the start went public. Um, that was very good for me to learn more of the fundamentals of of how traditionally to think about business and finance. Um, I spent a couple of years in venture capital. I ended up at eBay in the early years, um, building a lot of cool features and businesses. That was my first web company. Joined LinkedIn, ran product through the IPO. Um, and then I ended up at Greylock. And this is about 12 years ago. A great firm, uh, Reid Hoffman had gone over and he, he brought me over and... Uh, I, you know, it was very funny, but like in venture, you kind of have to look where everyone else is not looking to some extent, in, in my view, if you if you want to find differentiated returns. And so for me, it was always like, what are new areas that technology is moving into? And I'd always been into personal finance. I mean, my senior project in college was a better Quicken, right? Like it just I'd always I'd always been into it. Um. And I had these different interests, but you couldn't pursue them. But I started seeing these new crop of founders and companies that were just really interesting because they had different business models and ideas of how to build these businesses, right? So Mint had happened, but it sold for, you know, 170 million and something. It was okay, but in the venture world, that's not a great outcome. Um, but like I met all these founders and I mean, they really influenced me, right? This is when I met, you know, Brian Armstrong, who was raising the seed of Coinbase. I met, you know, Ken at Credit Karma. Um, I met, um, Bo at, at Future Advisor and I met Andy Ratcliffe at, at Wealthfront. Um, and I started forming this opinion that FinTech was really going to happen. FinTech wasn't a word back then, but this idea that the market was ready for financial applications again, I was excited about and... I told myself a story, which I've written about, about my investment in Figma, um, you know, 10 years ago, but I had this theory with a a friend of mine, John Lilly, who was a partner at Greylock, but I had this theory that like what we had seen in the desktop era was going to repeat that, you know, the desktop era had gone from productivity applications to desktop publishing and graphic design, and then to personal finance with Quicken, et cetera. And that we were going to see the same thing happen in the cloud with mobile, um, and social. And so, um, I said, why not jump to the end? Because I'm always impatient. Um, I got very excited about fintech and looked at a lot of different things. And then, of course, in talking to Andy, got very excited about what Wealthfront had stumbled onto and joined, uh, joined in the end of 2012. Um, and so ran that for four years. So my my fintech history goes back to there. Um, but um, i you know, been on the board of Acorns for over six years. Um, you know, and, um, in my portfolio, a lot of fintech companies, of course, um, it's an area that I continue to see a lot of exciting opportunity around, even though admittedly right now, everyone has become suddenly negative about fintech, which, you know, to me is, um, a fantastic opportunity. Like you actually need these times. It's almost like a, I don't want to call like a forest fire, but you kind of need to clear out the brush, a lot of the noise. Um, so you can focus on what the next decade is going to look like. Well,
0: you alluded to the boom bust cycle, right? I mean, not even alluded—you you hit the nail on the head with the boom bust cycle. And it turns out sometimes part of a boom bust cycle is the bust. But then most folks that have never seen a boom are convinced the boom will never come back. And I don't know—it's always hilarious to me how overreaction or over like overly reactionary we become in some of these moments. But we're humans. Fight flight, all that. Yeah. You know, it's funny that there, there are things in life that are very repeatable, but
1: they're hard to plan off because they, they do depend on all these independent actions, these things that you can't totally predict. I mean, there are things that really are cyclical. Like it's pretty easy to, to know that the sun's going to rise in the morning and how the earth moves and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, when it comes to humans and how they come together, I mean, this, this story of how to humans come together and innovate and create things that are economically valuable and actually move society forward. This has been a debated topic for thousands of years. Um, and, um, I do think that something very interesting has happened in the last 50 to hundred years about how that cycle progresses. And I actually do tie it to economics and company formation and what goes on in Silicon Valley. But, um, Yeah. I mean, so it seems obvious, like with 2020 hindsight, like it's gonna be obvious. Yeah. Oh, boom, bust cycle has been going on forever. But you know, there's always that, what if this time is different? Unfortunately, for some people, what if this time is different is sometimes a negative story. For me, it's always a positive story, but... For some people, it's uh, uh, negative.
0: It depends on how you look at it, for sure. And I will admit to the unforeseen global pandemic that might have been a little bit out of the ordinary. We were we were due for one, but we also weren't necessarily uh, ready or expecting it because, you know, yeah, all that. So from pandemic, let's jump to donor advice funds. So <laughs> what is what is a donor advice fund, Adam?
1: Oh, Donor Advice Fund is is a, an account, basically, that's been around for decades. Um, most people have never heard of it. Um, wealthy people who have advisors and accountants have probably heard of it, but most people haven't. Um, but it's a, just a tax-advantaged account for charity. Um, just like you have a 401k for retirement, you have a 529 plan for college savings. It turns out there is such a thing for charity the donor advised fund. And basically you can put assets in there, you can put cash in there, you can put stock, you can you can put crypto even these days, um, and you get the tax deduction for for putting money aside for charity. Um, but that money is invested. And then anytime you want to give to an operating charity, you just make a recommendation to do so. So it really is not that different from other tax advantaged accounts, except for the fact that it's not well advertised and marketed, that mostly donor advised funds have been the uh, the, the province of, of the wealthy um, who put millions or even billions of dollars into these funds. Um, but the idea behind Daffy was saying, listen, most people were raised to believe that giving to charity regularly is, is part of a good life. I mean, if you look at the data in the U.S., 60 to 70 million households give to charity every year, roughly. I mean, it's a huge number. And yet you look at the number of people who have donor advised funds, and it's incredibly small right? It's not even 10% of that number. It's not even 5% of that number. You're lucky if it's one or 2%. And so to me, um, I had this list, like all founders, I had this list of um, ideas for companies, EIR, that sort of thing. And um, I think there were 82 items on that list, by the way. And they were not all good. They were not all good. But um, I had this list of great financial products that hadn't been reinvented yet. And uh, the Donor Advice Fund was on there because I honestly think it's an incredible financial product. And I don't say that lightly because most financial products are not incredible, um, are not great for people. But the Donor Advice Fund really solves this problem, which is that when you have money to give and when you are inspired to give, when you actually have found an organization to give to, very often those two times don't align and the donor advised fund is just like any other financial goal. If you want to be the type of person that puts money aside for charity, having an account to do it, I mean, all of the behavioral finance research says that's better. And so Daffy was basically a very simple idea, which said, hey, we've had so much success building apps um, for spending and for saving and for investing. Like, why can't we do it for giving?
0: Makes sense. So a couple different, because of the fact that, to your point, not a... If, you know, everybody in the world has heard of one of these. I want to clarify a couple of things. So tax advantaged, when you say that, and especially when you kind of correlate it to like a 529 plan or something like that, that, you know, people might have as a, a employee benefit, can a donor advised fund be an employee benefit where you're taking it in pre-tax? Is that what you're saying? Or is it tax advantaged in a different way on the back end? What are, what does that mean? It's actually
1: both, right? So remember, like we have individual retirement accounts, you know, if, if your employer doesn't offer a plan, but we also have 401ks at work. Um, the donor advised fund really is an individual plan, more like an IRA. Okay, that's so that's uh, the most, best most analogy. Most of them that are opened. Um, but it is tax advantage. I mean, tax when you put money into it, not only do you get that tax deduction for giving your money to charity, but that money can be invested in portfolios. And those portfolios are not taxed as they grow. Right. So Daffy offers 13 different portfolios, ranging from cash, inflation protected bonds. We have ESG. We have Vanguard portfolios. Um, We even have crypto portfolios. But the point is, like once it's in a donor advised fund, you never taxed on it again. The downside, of course, is you can't take that money back. You told the government's for charity and they're like, I'm holding you to it. So that's that's a big deal. Um, Now, the idea you brought up, though, of the workplace, it's very funny you brought that up um we haven't talked about this um yet but we're getting a lot of requests for that so we've had some of our early members who were founders ceos who love what daffy does and saying how do i give this to my whole company and so we actually do have several companies now that are using daffy and they've just said like listen we want every employee to have an account like this and by the way we'll match i was wondering if that was the punchline we'll match yeah that we, you know like if Will match. You know, if you want to put aside $500 or $1,000 a year for charity, we'll match it, right? Whatever you put in will match up to $500, up to $1,000. Um, I think this is actually something to watch. This could be a very big change in the way that workplaces deal with charitable giving, et cetera. Um, I think it makes sense in, in some regards because there's been all this flurry of activity around remote work. People like to give locally. I mean, in the old days, you could just have, you know, a you could do a fundraiser or benefit or or have a volunteer activity by headquarters, et cetera. But what do you do when you have employees in 38 states, you know, in a dozen countries? Um, and so this idea of like, no, 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 this should just be like, you know, companies don't get involved with how you spend your money in retirement. They don't get involved with, you know, et cetera. But, but the idea of saying, hey, we want to build a culture that supports the financial health and well-being of our employees. And we want them to give to charity if they want to. Um, I don't know. I was shocked when we got these requests last year. I mean, you have to remember, we launched like a year and a half ago, so we are very new. Um, But um, I will tell you, you know, one of the companies we rolled this out with, um, uh, I think 70% of the employees signed up for it. Holy shit. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing adoption. That's like good 401k numbers. That's what I'm saying. Um, Wow. um, So I think there's something going on and it might have to do with the pandemic. It might have to do with people's psychology. I do think We've gone through this huge wave in the last decade where people went more and more online. Um, But, you know, for every move, there's a counter move for every action, you know, and I I do think that people are looking for more real world activities and ways to engage with folks. And I think the pandemic, we saw a lot of people engaging with nonprofits and charities locally, whereas before global had been a little bit more of the push. And so um, who knows um, if that's part of the psychology, but it is very clear to me that a lot of people, I don't want to say all people, but a, a huge number of people, I would say millions and millions of people really do believe that giving to charity, putting money aside for charity, not spending all your money on yourself is actually a big part of a healthy and and and, and ethical life. And um, I don't know, I, I get excited. Um, I'm a product guy, so I get excited when I see people using the product in ways that I didn't expect. And, and so um, who knows? Maybe maybe workplace uh, giving is going to be a big story in the next ten years.
0: I mean, it's interesting on a, it's interesting technologically, and it's interesting in terms of like employee benefit expansion. But it's also interesting from a societal level to me. Kind of thinking about, I mean, you talked about Brian Armstrong earlier, right, and some of the uh, not having politics at work, right, and things along those lines. And to me, this is kind of one of those things where if you can think about the A lot of people, I think, join companies or in the past have joined companies based on ethical alignment, right? And I think there's something to be said for that outside of politics, outside of, you know, charitable giving or who the company gives to. But it's interesting to think about even, I guess, the way that like a SaaS purchase would have in the. In you know, 20 years ago, mostly happened through a CFO and a CIO, and today might happen through a developer that just needs access to Figma or, or you know, a designer that just needs access to Figma. Or it's like it's pushing down the decision making to a much more kind of boots on the ground level. I think that's really interesting, right? So instead of the company giving money to charity, we give zero money to charity, but we will match, you know, whatever you're putting into your to your Daffy fund is a really interesting shift. And in, it's almost like, I don't know, the word populism is a little scary these days, but it's a little bit of a kind of a populistic shift there.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if those terms scare people, um, I always come back to, you know, this this tension between when do you centralize things versus when do you push it out to, to individuals um, to make their own decisions? And um, that 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 goes back and forth historically all the time. But but let's be clear, technology, for the most part, you, we were talking earlier about Silicon Valley, but engineering as a whole tends to push towards the individualistic. A lot of the reason people get into software is it's amazing that you don't have to ask anyone's permission to do things. You can sit down and write code when I actually when I met Brian Armstrong for the first time um, it was in the Starbucks. I think it was near Twitter headquarters. I'm not sure. I think we met. It was, it was not the best Starbucks, by the way. But we <laughs> I mean, sat down and we were <laughs> we were chatting about things. And he was the first crypto founder I had talked to who was incredibly pragmatic and, and, and thoughtful. Um, where he just said, listen, you know, if if I want to build a site that takes credit card, I mean this is before Plaid existed and a bunch of other things we built out in the fintech boom, but think like 2012, right? And so he's, he's like, listen, if, if you at the time they were building a wallet, but it, it was like, you know, listen, if, if I want to build software that handles bank accounts, transfers, wires, credit cards, et cetera, I have to have incredible business development teams, partnerships, all these things. And by the way, they can just say, no, they don't have to do business with you. Um, he's like, with crypto, I can download the code. I can just start building. Right. And, and that ethos of, of engineers being able to build is kind of an individualistic thing. Um, but it is an empowerment thing. I always think of this empowerment of empowering individuals. And I think around giving that is coming back. I think corporations are figuring out that centralized positions on things. That's very hard. That's basically politics, right? Like if you if you get frustrated with the way political parties work and what they orient around issues, well, it's a hard problem to align millions of people around anything. You're not getting 100 zero on anything. Um, and so I do think there's something around giving. Remember, giving touches a lot of topics that are very personal. It, it touches religion. It, it touches community. Um, it touches family. Um, and so actually, it makes sense to me. Um, I mean, we're we're very big on this theme. So last year for us, I was our first full year at Daffy. We were very big on like building out this new modern platform that could enable giving the way that, you know, spending and saving and investment built out. Um, but you know, now we're very focused on opening that up and enabling folks. So it could be that workplace giving is a piece of that platform. Um, we're excited about that. Um, we have APIs. We launched our first API partner, uh, in Q1. Um, I think that in the aggregate, I'm not saying that anyone did this on purpose, but in the aggregate, I do think that the new entrance in finance, basically the fintech community missed giving every incumbent has giving built into their platform. Fidelity, Schwab, every big bank, every big brokerage, you want to donate stock, it's a menu item. You want to donate cash, it's there. Um, even the old web companies. I mean, I was at eBay when we did charity auctions and that sort of thing. Um, but it's mostly missing from fintech. And so I'm hoping is that our APIs can be a method for every fintech application to build giving into their into their service for their customers.
0: It, it kind of speaks to the market development too, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of like, I don't know if it's it's definitely not Maslow's hierarchy. I don't know whose hierarchy it is, but it's there's some sense of a Maslow's hierarchy with building a lot of this, right? Like what building Daffy before Plaid, like in a lot of cases wouldn't make sense, right? Like the, the ability for us to build these large financial institutions that actually are thinking about financial inclusion, leveling the playing field. And then we actually finally have a chance to think about giving. It kind of makes sense, right? This is what I love about software. You,
1: you hit the nail on the head. It's um, what's great about software and, and building and technology is that you can take a very smart person, huge IQ, incredible educated, know all this stuff, whatever your definition of smart is, you can take a smart person. And the best solution to the problem changes every few years just because what's available. Um, and that's because unlike other areas, technology moves so fast in terms of capabilities that actually the limits you have, like technology lives to take things that were expensive and rare and make them inexpensive and abundant. Like that's that's really when technology is at its best. And um, that changes frequently. So you're right, you're building FinTech. Now, I don't think we could have built Daffy five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. I mean, I cannot tell you how hard it was to build Wealthfront. And by the skin of our teeth, finding custodians who would actually have APIs that would let you open and fund an account. I mean, that was that was novel. And people and, and were like, whoa, 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 why would you want to do this? I mean, um, by the way, this wasn't just in the US. I was the advisor for a company called Raisin in Europe. And a lot of their innovation was just making a great mobile flow to open up bank accounts in Europe. That sounds so obvious, but yet that wasn't really a thing um, until they did it. And so Um, I'm hoping we can do the same thing with giving, but you're 100% correct. Daffy is built like, could we build Daffy? Like now, you know, I have Coinbase to handle crypto. I have, you know, of course, Apex and others to handle securities. I have Wells Fargo will do business with us to handle cash. Um, You know, we have Plaid, we have um, Sardine to help us with fraud and, 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 you know, KYC and these other, I mean, there's so many companies that go into um, building a site like Daffy. Um, But what that means is this crazy thing that, you know, Two co-founders, like Alejandro and I can get together, you know, and say, hey, we want to build this thing. Some investors actually say, like, we'll, we'll back that. We'll give you a shot. And we can get together a dozen people. Not a hundred people, not a thousand people, like a dozen people. And actually build something novel and interesting that has a shot at actually making life better for, for I hope millions of people. Right. When I see, when I see contributions coming to Daphne, when I see donations go out, um, whether they're a $18 donation or a $700,000 donation is actually our largest donation to date on the platform. Um, when I see this money going out, I, I feel good about what we built. I, I like to think that we had some influence on on making that possible. And maybe it's not the whole story; it, of course, isn't. But um, you know, they, people describe this as you know, building on the you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, I, I'm always fond of the um, there's a little bit of that iceberg analogy of how much work it takes to build software and how little is above the surface in what you see. Um, but um, it is true. It's not something that any team can do by themselves. It's, it's, it is a collectivist action, but it's not a collectivist action that's organized politically. It's a collectivist action of literally tens of thousands of companies and founders and engineers who each are building little pieces that they think are interesting. And then people coming in and saying, oh, if you have these new pieces, what can I build with that? It's amazing. I think it's amazing.
0: Uh, I totally agree, man. I mean, I dedicated my life to the fucking thing. If if we're if we're not doing something good, I don't know what we're. I mean, let's let's give up and I don't know. Go work at one of the charities or something. Um, I'm curious in the in like the founding thesis of Daffy. Was the API part of the founding thesis? Like, was the embedded nature, like the embedded giving idea, part of the distribution? Plan from the beginning, or has that been like making contact with the market and kind of ended up there?
1: Um, you know, like I, I, I um, I want to be careful here, yeah. So ask as much as or answer and as much as you want. Remember when I talked about connecting the dots going backwards? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, a lot of what happens in tech <laughs> is people tell stories about who is always part of the plan, and um, it seems that way. The reason it seems that way, though, is there's a kernel of truth to it, which is that the people involved and the things you're doing. You know, that that old that old saying that, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme a lot. Um, and it's um, there's a little bit of that where software does repeat, which is when you build something that is generally useful. One of the options you always have is, is opening it up as a platform and, and, and realizing if you find it useful. Some of my best investments as an angel investor, you know, we built this proprietary system. LinkedIn was relatively early and figure out how to build a modern mobile application. I ran mobile at LinkedIn. We built this custom back end. So when I met James Tamplin at Firebase, I was like, oh, what you're building is exactly what mobile developers need. We built it at LinkedIn. You're opening up as a platform. I will back this. <laughs> like I think this will be big. Um and of course it's now become a huge thing inside Google and 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 uh it got acquired. Um but uh I, I do believe that um the API for us, um look Alejandra and I worked on platform before we're engineers, developers, we love APIs. Like so I don't want to say it was part of the plan. It was always sitting there as something we love to do. Um but really actually the the opportunity came to us. We built something, got the word out there, and, and we started having people saying, hey, I could build something with this. I could use this. And um, you know, we we basically did make the decision to kind of do it. To me at startups, the big question is 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 more of a question of when, not if. The hard decision for us was very much is now the right time to open this up. Um, and I don't know. The truth is from a distribution standpoint, I you know it might help with distribution. It might not, I'm not, I'm not it's, it's not really a growth move. Really? Um, at least I don't think of it that way. No, to me, the way I think of it as um, really just this basic fundamental fact that if you want to make giving easier, like our mission is to help people be more generous more often. Um, you're always going to do better at that by meeting people where they are versus making them come to you, right? You know, it's just, I mean, I remember when I was building out the LinkedIn platform and, and that sort of thing, it was like that basically, no matter how big we made LinkedIn and LinkedIn got pretty big. I mean, I granted, it's not Facebook big, but it's pretty big. I mean, I think it's 10 billion in revenue. It's got hundreds of millions of active users. It's not small. But no matter how, no matter how big you make LinkedIn, the web is bigger. And that's how I feel about FinTech, right? No matter how big we make Daffy, there's, there's, there's no substitute for the fact that actually it would be even bigger if giving was implemented in all these different financial applications, right? And if we can make that happen, yes, I do think that will accrue benefits to Daffy. There's no question. And And our mission really is to aggregate this community. I shouldn't say our mission, but our vision is really a world where everyone puts money aside regularly for those less fortunate than themselves. And so when you think about it that way from a mission vision standpoint, the idea of a platform really comes down to what, what is your purpose? Are you are you there to make money? Are you there to to go public to build a company? Are you there to build new technology? Daffy has built mission oriented. We actually are focused on the end product, which is we want to see more giving. I mean in the US, I mean, we put this crazy thing out last year, but like we we really believe it, which is that as big as giving is in the US, right? It's almost half a trillion a year now. We are one of the few companies out there saying like, you know what? It should be bigger. That's actually not big enough, right? Out of, out of 23 or whatever trillion a year in, in GDP and, and that sort of thing, like we could give more. And actually what's amazing is in the research that I've done and, and others, people want to give more and just the friction gets in the way. So Daffy exists to remove friction. To let from people being their better selves, from giving when they want to give, and so the API to me is just a part of how you enable that vision, how you make it possible. And I'm hoping um, that the fintech community um, embraces that idea. Um, we've seen some already some good pull. Like I said, we launched our first integration uh, in Q1, um, and it's been phenomenal. I remember when the first donation came through through, and we're like, "That's a donation that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise, right?" That's that that. I don't know. There's different things that make teams feel great. Makes me feel
0: great to see it happen. I mean, I I I really I mean, I guess it's about how you phrase it, right? Is it a growth strategy? Is it, you know, I, I see what you mean about it. it's it's a moving you closer to accomplishing your mission. But I truly for me it's it there's so many of these. Vitamins, right? And I, I, I think we can agree that Daffy's a bit of a, especially for non-high net worth individuals, it's more of a vitamin than a painkiller, and I think that with vitamins, if you don't find the right distribution. Channels and you, to your point, don't meet them where they live at that right moment, it's hard as hell to get them to go out of their way to actually go find that vitamin and like decide that they need that vitamin C that day. You know, like Bloom was recently sold to Morgan Stanley for much less than it should have been sold for. And a big part of that, from my perspective, came back to the fact that an API was never built and that it was just like you had to go to this corner of the internet to find this website to manage your 401k. And it was doing amazing. Things for the world, like people that never would have had their four hundred one k managed or never had no other, you know, IRA or brokerage or anything else to manage, like had that been able to scale, like the world would be a better place. And I think with things like Daffy, it feels very similar. Where if you know you can the best laid plans of mice and men with a great marketing strategy on its own product in its own silo is one thing, but like. You know, Daffy existing on Robinhood, existing on Chime, existing on, you know, what a name your Neo Bank or name your kind of you know more consumer-facing thing. Like that's that's how this mission gets accomplished, right? I mean, that's kind of the for at least from my point of view. I, I think that's right.
1: Um, the only quibble I would give, um or or addition I would make to that is um, so I, I definitely agree with you. Like, that's what I mean about meeting people where they are. I think you have to be honest about numbers, right? And the audience you're going after and where can you reach them? And and like I said, um, the only thing I'll quibble is that the vitamin painkiller thing, eh, my whole career, m- more than 20 years, I've heard this analogy and it's really useful in the enterprise, right? For B2B sales and that sort of thing. You, you know, when you're talking to a company that needs what you're doing versus like you could talk them into it. Um, and has a lot to do with scaling to a venture scale business but I think when it comes to giving and I think in general treating as a binary isn't quite right it, it, you know it's easy to say that's a spectrum but I'd also say it really depends on the audience like what I've discovered about giving and what I see is that yes for a lot of people giving, matters a little bit. Like someone taught them that it was important. They believe it's important, but they're like I'll get to that later. A lot of people map this to when they're older, like when I'm older and I've made it and I'll 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 give. But there's a lot of people. I mean, I'm a parent. I have I have four kids. There's a lot of people who the problem of how do they raise their children? How do they live a good life? Um I have talked to people who are religious who believe that you know the bounty, they any success they've had in life, you know, Comes from a higher power in some ways. And it's a test in a way. Do they keep it for themselves? Are they selfish? Or do they help others with that? And and I I don't know how to describe that, but in Maslow's hierarchy, I'm not sure it really captures those elements. I mean, we are not just machines that go out there and and do what we do. Um, We are social creatures. We have models of ethics and society, et cetera. And so I will tell you the thing that got me started on Daffy, I would not have started Daffy if I thought for everyone that giving was some sort of nice to have. But the numbers betray that idea. Like it, it's not, you can't have 60 to 70 million, you know how hard it is to get 60 to 70 million Americans to do anything? The, the idea that 60, 70 million households give to charity regularly. Um, you look at like religion, you look at um, how people are raised, you look at how parents, I mean, we rolled out this family feature in the fall. Um, actually right around Money 2020 last year. Um, we rolled out this family feature um, and we were just blown away at how many parents and grandparents have reached out to us. Um, you know, there are dozens and do- I think there's over a thousand donor advised funds out there in the U.S. right now. But which one has a family plan? Which one lets you teach your kids or grandkids what organizations matter to you or or teach them about the value of giving? I mean, every tech product has a family plan. Apple, Microsoft. I know this as a parent, I, I have too many subscriptions, as it turns <laughs> out. Um I have all of them. Right. But um, but you know, no donor advice fund does. And, and yet it's not a hard thing to do anymore. And so um yeah, that'd be my only my only take there is that um I do think that giving, unfortunately, life is very difficult. People have work, even in the best of times, they have work, they have dating. Um, or family life, they have social life, they have all these different things going on. And I do think that giving, because it's currently very transactional, gets pushed off into the future. But I've talked to these people, when, when people find out that an organization they support, that they forgot to give to them last year, and that organization had a tough year, maybe because of the pandemic, maybe otherwise something else going on, that is not a good feeling for people. Like a lot of people... Feel like they never want that to happen again. And I'm hoping that Daffy solves that problem for this, right? Daffy is like you set up your organizations, recurring donations, you put the money aside. It's like any financial goal. And um, what we see is that people are just very happy to know, to have the peace of mind that that's happening, right? That they, they're not going to forget, that they're not going to miss something important, that they actually are going to do it. So, um, but I do think the API will open that up. Um, to much broader audiences um, and make it a little easier for people to make that decision that they want to make in the moment. I mean, that's like the e-commerce takeaway. Like it's like, if you get someone who's ready to buy, get them through the flow. I mean, Shopify is so good. I mean, so good at it now. Shopify is amazing watching that happen.
0: Um, I I really want to see that happen for giving. So I agree with everything you're saying. I think for me, it's more a matter of like, the kind of person that you're talking about is probably already giving in a non-optimal way, right? And then you're meeting them in a direction where they can actually understand a more optimal way to give. So I guess that's more what I was saying about like vitamin versus painkiller. So I I think we totally agree. And I know we're coming up on time here. I have one last question and then I wanna kind of let you share um, you know, where to find more and all that kind of stuff, which obviously I'll put in the show notes. how do you and this is one of the biggest questions I have about this is how do you how do you see this expanding to your earlier point, giving into folks that maybe wouldn't have thought about it before? Right. Because I, I, I and let me let me share my bias in the question. My bias is that donor advised funds I think of, to your point, as a high net worth tool. Right. And I think that FinTech's done a great job of taking high net worth tools and bringing them down and giving access to the masses. I guess the question is like partially like how long of a journey do you think it is partially, you know, kind of what do you see the average donation being even almost like, do you think these are going to be $10 donations on a regular basis? Like, where do you see that kind of like use that standard use case kind of shaking out? I guess the question was very broad and poorly phrased, but I think, you know what I mean in terms of just kind of like how this is going to grow and become kind of more ubiquitous.
1: Yeah. Well, this has to do a little bit. I wrote this post a couple of years ago about what I thought the next wave of fintech was going to look like. And, and not surprisingly, I built a lot of those concepts into Daffy. Um, I wrote a post at the end of last year. Um, when we started Daffy, I was very much thinking about Acorns. I mean, I was on the board of Acorns, a simple little app that helps you save your spare change is now helping millions of people with their financial lives. And, and that that's really meaningful. I said, like, what if we could do for giving what Acorns did for saving? But as we've built this out, I actually see more in common with what Daffy is trying to do with what LinkedIn did. And by the way, you asked how long it takes. LinkedIn is 20 years old. We just celebrated <laughs> the anniversary. Um, uh, the launch date is actually was on Cinco de Mayo. So it's this week. Um, but um, it can take a very long time. Like, get me wrong. Think about old apples um, at this point. But um, but I think what people miss about this is, is yes, we are enabling this account, this donor advice fund, et etc. But giving isn't quite like other financial tasks. Giving is actually a group activity, right? We we care about the organizations. We care about who volunteers there. We do them with other people. It's not just about money. We've tried very hard to build Daffy to be about people more than dollars. And so, but I do think we encourage each other. Like if you talk to most nonprofits, I, I've been on the board of a couple nonprofits. I'm on the you know co chair one right now. Um, People go on a journey when it comes to giving, when it comes to philanthropy. It often doesn't start with money. Sometimes it starts with going to an event. Sometimes it starts with volunteering. Sometimes it never gets to money. But guess what? All that money by itself does nothing. That money only does something when it goes to people and activities that actually drive the mission forward. And so what I'm hoping Daffy turns into increasingly is a place where people can go to flex that part of their lives, to be that person. I mean, um, every member of Daffy ends up with a profile that highlights the causes they support, the organizations that they they work with, who they donate to, of course, um, and messages. We did this campaign for the holidays last fall where we had people, they could spotlight a charity that they support on their profile. And people are tweeting this out. They're getting other people to give. But more importantly, they're getting people involved. So you asked me what I'm hoping for, for Daffy in 5, 10, 20 years. Um, what I'm hoping is that we have a community of millions of people who all believe in the idea of giving and are putting money aside um, for the the cause they support. But it becomes the place that people come to. Um, if you're an organization, it's the place where you find people. Um, of course, you can fundraise off it if that's what you want. But it's also a place to look for board members or volunteers. And I think people will go to it more as a place to discover organizations that are tied to causes they believe in. I mean, there are over one and a half million nonprofits in the US alone, legal ones that are supported on Daffy. There's no way any of us know them all or which ones are good or which ones are bad or which ones align with our values. And so I, I know it sounds crazy, but I said this about LinkedIn back in the day. So I've been crazy before and it turned out. Um, my, I always said that with LinkedIn, people saw it as a tool, they were comparing it to monster.com. And I said, LinkedIn isn't, like a job site, LinkedIn is going to turn out to be more like a marketplace, right between companies and individuals. That's where I see Daffy long term is this marketplace, but but one focused on giving and um, unfortunately, it turns out with all the different sites we've built and apps and new things we've done, I don't think there's a great place for that online. You can't really do it on Twitter or LinkedIn or or Facebook. You can't really do it on Instagram. I mean, the nonprofits I'm involved with don't know where to go because it's very hard to find because it, giving, it's hard for giving to compete with dating and spending and shopping and all these other news and politics like it gets crowded out. So I'm hoping Daffy becomes a space where people you know, can be or at least live this part of themselves that I mean, I think we can all agree would probably be better for everyone if we all spent a little bit more time there and a little less time on those other things.
0: Oh, I love it. And I think that's a great, great note to close on. Um, I will link to obviously you Daffy in the show notes, but if there's anything specific that you want the audience to take away or know about, or, you know, something coming up that you especially want them to be aware of, feel free to to toss it out there. This is your plug moment. Listen, I'm happy to, the thing with Daffy, I
1: say, is like, just try it. Like we, we actually make it super easy to try. Um, I'm Happy to give you an invitation for your listeners, but anyone who uses it, you can use mine. Um, anyone who has an invitation at Daffy gets 25, when they fund their account, they get an extra $25 to give to the charity of their choice. Um, it feels good. If there's any organization that you ever support, I don't care if it's your kid's school, a church, a synagogue, the San Francisco Zoo, a queer, like whatever you support, I, 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 no judgment here, um, try it. Um, put some money in, make a donation. And I think what you'll feel is like, oh, that was great. Um, and I think you'll feel good about it yourself too. And and so mostly I just encourage people to just try it. Um, you know, most of us don't have an app for giving already. Um, so it's a new thing. Um, but what we've learned from our members is that when they set up a separate account for giving, they give more and they give more often. And that's not just good for us. That's not just good for the non- nonprofits that receive it. I truly believe it's good for people, That it's a better, it makes you feel better about the life you're living and and, and what you're doing. And so um, if I can give a little bit of money, um, a little bit of time to help people go on that journey and find it, I will. So happy to give you an invite. Uh, My invite is just, if you go to daffy.org or you can search for Daffy in the app store, um, it's super easy to get started. It just takes a few seconds.
0: Beautiful. I'm gonna go ahead. I think I'll set one up and put my uh, my thing in the show notes so everybody can have a have a chance to go give it a shot. I love that, Adam. Oh, uh, you get the twenty five dollars too. We'll see how much you can rack up for charity. You can I love do a it. Campaign. I love it. I love it. Thank you for the time, Adam. It's been a pleasure, man. I've been following you for a long time. Like I said, it's really good to connect and actually get to spend some time. And we're gonna have to gonna have to make this like a semi regular check in to see how the world of uh, you know g- generosity and fintech is uh, shaken out. Well, listen, I'm happy to do it. It's been a wonderful conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for listening to FinTech Family Hour. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you want to learn more about Adam and Daffy, check out the show notes. Otherwise, don't forget to check out our sponsor, FS Vector at FSVector.com. And the last thing is don't forget to review, rate, subscribe, and all the other engagement opportunities that you have with fintech family hour shout it from the rooftop send up a smoke cycle pump those numbers folks that's all i ask but until next time stay healthy keep your head high i love you all